The book of Revelation, chapter 11, this morning, our purpose is to look at the seventh trumpet. Seventh trumpet. You do have that uh, overall outline of the structure of Revelation, from chapter 6 through 18, where the seven-sealed book is open. You might want to keep that in front of you, too, just to keep the, the flow of the context before you. I'd like to begin by reading Revelation chapter 11, 14 to 19. Verse 14. The second woe is past. And behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and it was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. So now after an interlude of 24 verses, chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 13, The revelation of Jesus Christ returns to the judgments of the seven-sealed book. And although there are only seven seals, there are three series of judgments revealed in that seven-sealed book. So we have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven vials of judgment. Does this mean that there are 21 separate judgments? No, it does not. In a sense, there's only one judgment. The visitation of God's wrath on Israel for their apostasy, covenant breaking, and the rejection of Jesus Christ. That wrath fell upon Israel when God sent as the agents of his judgment the Roman army into Judea to lay waste to the land and to the people and ultimately to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. The judgments set forth in the seven seals, seven judgments, and seven vials explain to us, visualize for us the course of that war, the horrors and devastation of that war, the demonic brutality of that war, and then the climax of that war from 21 different views, perspectives or images and symbols. Now, the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet have some notable similarities. 
seventh seal and the seventh trumpet. First of all, there was an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. And we've had the same here, an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. The seventh seal, when opened, gave us a vision of heaven. But there, there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. As the seventh trumpet is sounded, there was also again opened unto us a vision of heaven. But instead of silence, there are great voices in heaven. The seventh seal showed us a vision of the prayer of the saints before God's throne. The seventh trumpet gives us a vision of the praise and worship of the saints. That is, the 24 elders before the throne, as they celebrate the triumph of Christ. So both had visions in heaven and of the saints of God in heaven, worshiping and praising God and praying to God. The seventh seal, we see the prayers of the saints for judgment on their persecutors. While the seventh trumpet gives us the assurance that those prayers are heard. They're now to be answered. The seventh seal closes with voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. The seventh trumpet closes with lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. The seventh seal leads ultimately to the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet leads ultimately to the seventh vial. So we see many similarities between these two. Now let's look at the seventh trumpet. First of all, its introduction, which is found in verse 14. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And so what we have after the interlude that led us up to verse 13, we now return to the sequence of the judgments. Now the trumpet sequence concluded with three woes. Look back to chapter 8, verse 13. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the three angels which are yet to sound. Okay, so the last three trumpets are said specifically to be woes. So we explain the word woe is actually an interjection, expressing pain and horror that attends great distress, disaster, and horrible circumstances. The first woe was the horrendous unleashing of demons on the land of Judea that plunged the land into wickedness, hatred, civil war, murder, and the like. That was in chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. The second woe was the coming of the invincible Roman army that slaughtered tens of thousands and ravaged the land of Judea. Now we come to the third woe. As it says here in the passage, the second woe was passed, which was the, the vision of the uh, invading army. And behold, now the third woe cometh quickly. The end is quickly to be with us. Now this third woe, as I as saw as I read it to you, is introduced by the announcement of the victory and enthronement of Jesus Christ. And that is truly a woe to the Jews, because when your arch enemy, 
is exalted to ultimate authority over you, you're in trouble. And so the fact they hated Christ, they put him on the cross, then they persecuted his followers, now it is revealed, and this is their great woe, that he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is sovereign over them. And he has the power and the will to exercise justice upon them. That's why it's a woe. Again, think of your worst enemy is put in ultimate power over you. That's not a good situation. And I think that's what we have to understand when we see this glorious announcement of Christ's kingship and why it is a woe to the Jews, why it is a woe to those who hate him. But, you know, it's also a woe to those today who hate and reject Jesus Christ because Christ is the king. Christ is the Lord. And those who submit to his Lordship are blessed, but those who rebel against it can only find the same kind of woe that is described in the book of Revelation. Now, in the last verse of this, verse 19, we saw these lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and hail. I believe that these things are a summary image of, of the end of the war and the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. We saw those same phenomena in the seventh seal, the sixth leading to the seventh seal. But like with the seventh seal, we had a, as it were, recapitulation of the war and its horrors in the seven trumpets. So after we hear the seventh trumpet, we actually do not come to the end of John's description, that is Christ's description through John of the judgment, because we're going to yet see seven vials. But what we come to in uh, the sixth seal, leading to the seventh seal, and we come in the seventh trumpet, we come to the end They all lead to the same culmination and climax of judgment, which is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So that's what our subject is here today, and it's the third woe, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But let's look now at the details of this. In verse 15, we start. And the seventh angel sounded. There it is, the sounding of the seventh trumpet the last trumpet of the series. And there were great voices in heaven. And so the trumpet sounds, and what we have here is not silence like we saw in the seventh seal when it was opened, but then after the silence we saw the prayers of the saints in the seventh seal. Here there's no silence at all. But instead, as the trumpet sounds, John hears great voices in heaven. Great voices in heaven. And here's what they were saying. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So as the trumpet sounds, in heaven this crescendo of voices breaks forth, declaring this glorious announcement concerning the kingdom of God. And that it is this, that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. This is truly one of the great verses of the book of Revelation. 
One of the great verses in Scripture. A.T. Robertson, in his comments on the book of Revelation, says, This is the crowning lesson of the apocalypse. This is the verse, the crowning lesson, he says, of what the whole message of the book of Revelation is about. It is what? That the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. This is the hallmark of glory. This is the hallmark of victory. This is the great testimony of the church of Jesus Christ. This is our encouragement. This is our strength. This is our glory. Now, the word for kingdoms, you know, see the word king in there? It's the same with the Greek term here for kingdoms. It refers to a region or country governed by a king. Literally, a kingdom is the realm that is governed by a king. What this means is that all kingly authority in the world, the kingdoms, the realms that were governed by kings, have been transferred, or better perhaps to say, put under the authority of the Lord God Almighty and His appointed King, Christ. All the nations of the earth, all the kings, all the mighty men who rule over the nations, this is what the seventh trumpet declares. That their kingdoms and their authority has been placed under another king. And we see who that king is. His Christ. His anointed king, Jesus Christ. Now, the biblical background to this announcement is found in Psalms 2 and Psalm 110. I've repeatedly said, if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. The Old Testament prepares the way for the new. And I'm going to, if you turn there in your Bible, let me read Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth. Now these are the kings that are being spoken of in our passage in Revelation. The kingdoms. The kings of the earth. They have set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. You see that in our Revelation passage? They become the kingdoms of our Lord and his anointed. Because Christ means anointed. Exactly taken from Psalm 2. In other words, this trumpet is declaring for all who have ears that Psalm 2 has been fulfilled. But it starts out with the rebellion of the kings who see themselves as independent, as autonomous. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they want to live out in their kingly authority what we just read in Isaiah today. They want to go their own way, not the way of the Lord. They want their own agenda, their own authority, their own glory. But God, we are told, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. This is the laugh of derision, the laugh of scoffing. These puny kings rebelling against the Lord and his anointed. God's first response, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then he shall speak. 
unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Here's what he's going to say. I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. We're saying is this is fulfilled. The seventh trumpet's announcing this fulfillment. This is Psalm 2 was prophetic. Now it is fulfilled, John is telling us in the vision. God has set his king upon the holy hill of Zion. And here now the king speaks. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. In other words, all the kingdoms are transferred to him. They're all given to him. They're his, his inheritance for his faithfulness, his obedience. It's all given to him. Even to the uttermost parts of the world, they belong to him. But God also said, even though they belong to you, i got to tell you, my son, I'm giving to you provinces that are currently in rebellion to me. So I will now empower you to break their rebellion. And so God says to his son, you shall break them with a rod of iron. The rod refers to a king's scepter, and it's an unbreakable scepter. It's made of iron. It's not some uh, light stick that would snap the first time it was uh, struck something that was obdurate. Anyway, he's given invincible power over these rebellious nations, and he is commissioned to break their rebellion. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now here's the counsel. You know, wise therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, and then this is kiss his son. Because the kingdoms of this world belong to our Lord and his son. So serve the Lord with fear and kiss his son, meaning do, do obeisance to him lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. This is the basis of our text this morning. This is a reality. The seventh trumpet declares it. He has taken his position. The Lord has set him on his holy hill of Zion, which is the Zion that's in view here, may have originally had some reference to the type of Christ in the Davidic kingship, but it's fulfilled ultimately in Christ upon the holy hill of heavenly Zion. He is at the Father's right hand. He is over all the kings of the earth. And he has been commissioned to break their rebellion. What do we see in the book of Revelation? The Lord Jesus Christ taking the rod of iron that was put in his hand and punishing the rebels who conspired against him and put him on a cross. And then, after that, to add injury to insult, they rejected his offer of pardon through the apostles who, who came and preached to the Jews, beginning on the day of Pentecost, when they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They said, Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God will yet forgive you, even your horrendous crime, if you repent. And instead, though a few Jews did, the majority of the nation spit in the faces of the apostles and persecuted them unto death. And so his anger has been kindled a little. Well, no, Revelation said his anger has been kindled a lot. And so if, if it's just kindled a little and your, 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 your time is up, what's it going to be like if it's kindled a lot? 
But there's also another psalm, the great messianic psalm, Psalm 110. Again, quoted in the New Testament like Psalm 2 is. It says this, The Lord said unto my Lord. Now David is the speaker. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my master, my sovereign, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Peter tells us on the day of Pentecost this was fulfilled at Jesus' ascension. Read it, chapter 2 of Acts. Christ ascended, and God said to him, in fulfillment of Psalm 110, sit on my right hand, that is, share my throne as my mediatorial king, and take that authority that I have given you, and reign, and with that authority, your enemies will become your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Psalm 2 spoke about an iron rod. There's the rod again. God will send that rod of his kingly authority and sovereign uh, grant of power out of the heavenly Zion, and Christ is commanded to rule in the midst of his enemies. That is, to rule in the midst of your enemies is to put down their rebellion or punish them if they won't repent. Then chapter 3 through the end of the psalm is a beautiful poetic look of what Christ will do with this grant of authority. And I will forbear on many comments, but look at verse 3. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Well, the kingdoms of this world, back to Revelation 11, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ And he shall reign forever and ever. So the sounding of the seventh trumpet is sounding the fulfillment of Psalms 2 and Psalm 110. The time has come. The reality of the mediatorial kingship of Jesus Christ has been unmistakably revealed. We must keep this announcement in its historical context. The book of Revelation was written by John in the first century A.D. and it was about things that must shortly take place because the time is at hand. But I want you to note with me in the translation here in our our Bibles, it says the kingdoms of this world are become. It sounds like it is now happening when the seventh trumpet sounds. But actually, the tense of the verb in the original refers to a past event could also be translated, have become, as something that took place in the past and is relevant and still ongoing in the present. From the standpoint of the writing of the book of Revelation in John's day and the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the enthronement of Christ had already taken place. It was a past event. And we know when that took place from the New Testament at Christ's ascension. The phrase, the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, indicate that the kingdoms of the world now belong to the Lord and have been placed under the reign and authority of Jesus Christ. And he has been commissioned to subdue the nations. That's his great commission. Subdue the nations to your rule. Which, by the way, gives us some insight into our work in our great commission. The Great Commission is not evangelism. That's part of it, for sure. 
But the Great Commission is to make disciples of the nations so that they will obey. Jesus said, all things whatsoever I have spoken. The church's role is to bring the world to Christ in submission to the Lordship of Christ by receiving his gospel and submitting to his reign. And so we go out. We're workers with Christ in bringing the nations to Christ. And he does this in his mercy through the gospel. He always brings to his enemies the hope of pardon. You may have rejected Christ all your life. You may have done things even like the Jews, where you you, you spit upon Christ, and yet he still offers you forgiveness. And so the gospel goes out to, to bring the rebellious peoples and kings and rulers and nations of the world to, to, to submit to Christ as the Savior and the Lord. What's the message of the church? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. We need to keep that in mind. I understand there's a, there's a way and there's a place to say that, tell the people they need to believe on Jesus. But that's not quite enough. Because they could believe on Jesus as the kind, humble carpenter from Nazareth. They could believe on Jesus as the, the, the Lamb of God. Do they believe on the Jesus of the ascension. The, the Jesus who has fulfilled Psalm 2 and 110, he's Lord. And so when we preach to people of their need for forgiveness, we un, have to understand that with that forgiveness is coming into submission to the rule of Christ over their life. Our goal is not to get people into heaven. Our goal is to bring them to the foot of the cross and to the foot of the one who reigns from that cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might love him and serve him. That's our goal. That's our mission. We're not here to save souls. We're here to exalt Christ and bring people to submit to that glorious Savior who reigns over all. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And Jesus Christ is fulfilling his commission to subdue the rebellious peoples of the earth through the gospel of his church, offering forgiveness to the rebels. But those who spurn the forgiveness, those nations and peoples and kings who spurn it, he then also subdues them through the rod of iron in his hand. I would call them historical judgments, historical sanctions. So he's bringing his enemies under his footstool through the gospel and through historical sanctions and judgment. Now, how is all this connected with the seventh trumpet? Which is marking the utter defeat of Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The answer is that it reveals for all who have eyes to see that Christ is, present tense, the mediatorial king. In the cataclysmic overthrow of Judea, Judaism, Jerusalem, and the temple, Jesus Christ fulfills his own prophecy in the Olivet Discourse, and he demonstrates his reign over his enemies, according to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Look at Matthew 26, please. This is a a key text to understanding the seventh trumpet and what's happening in this. 
This is the chapter of Christ's Last Supper, his prayer in Gethsemane, and then his treacherous betrayal by Judas and the arrest that took place in the garden when he was hauled before the Jewish high priest to be tried. Verse 59, now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses, and they said, This fellow fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest rose and answered him, said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses witness against you? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou... Tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death, and they did spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of the hand, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is it that smote thee? Verse 64. When Jesus says, thou hast said, he's basically, you've said it, you've said the truth. You've got it. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a figure of speech that indicates he assents to that very title. And of course, the high priest understood it that way very clearly, that he was claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God, because he instantly rips his clothing in horror and calls for the death penalty upon him. But Jesus says, you've said it. You've got it right. I'm in your power. But I say unto you, hereafter, it's coming another day, when you will sit in judgment of me, hereafter you will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, where? Sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. These people who condemn are going to see him not coming to earth, but sitting somewhere. This is not his second coming. You will see me, what? Sitting at the right hand of power. In other words, I will be enthroned at the right hand in fulfillment of Psalm 110. You will see it. You will see it in the sense of my coming in judgment upon you. In Revelation 1.7, the theme verse of this book of Revelation says, He comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. These people are going to see Him at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds. Almost word for word from what Jesus' answer is here in verse 64. In other words, 
The judgment of Christ will be made known in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and in that very act, all who have eyes to see will see that he is the mediatorial king. Again, notice, you will see the Son of Man sitting. And so the coming with the clouds of heaven is that coming in divine judgment, because he's sitting. It's not second coming. You'll see it. And they did see that war. They did see that destruction. They did see the horrendous uh, suffering that came upon the people. They did see the temple fall. Even as Jesus said, And this seventh trumpet, which is the announcement of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, is the means whereby that prophecy of Jesus before the high priest is fulfilled and the theme verse of Revelation finds its glorious consummation. So that's what it means. The seventh trumpet, the fall of Jerusalem, the temple, reveals for all who have eyes to see who Christ is, where he sits. Do you see that today? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is seated at the right hand of God Almighty right now? The Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of God, Do you believe it? Revelation is telling you to believe it. The events that it reveals show him to be who he claimed to be. Remember, he said in his very last hours, he predicted that not one stone would be left upon the temple. This magnificent wonder of the world, the greatest temple in the world. It was the most magnificent sight imaginable, and the thought that it would be completely leveled to the ground was preposterous. But it happened within the generation of those who killed him, just like he said. Because this is the divine signature that Christ is who he said he was. Because the very people who said he is not who he said he was, paid with their lives and their nation. Christ is the Son of God. Christ is the reigning Lord. And so this leads to this worshipful anthem in verses 16 to 18. And he is the king. He reigned in the first century. He reigns forever and ever. He reigns today. Jesus Christ is in the same position that he was when his words were fulfilled in that judgment. And so what's the response? In verses 16 to 18, we read this. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to to thee thy great power and has reigned. The nations were angry, and thy wrath has come. In the time of the dead, that they should be judged, thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. This is the anthem of the 24 elders. An anthem is a song of worship and adoration to God. And this is their anthem given to us in verses 17 and 18. Now, who are the 24 elders? We won't take much time to go back over this, but we saw them first in Revelation 4 and then again in Revelation 5. And in our study of those passages, we identified them as the representatives of the true church of God in heaven. 
the representatives. We have the 12 tribes of Israel, and we have the 12 apostles that are put forward in a prominent way in the new heavens and the new earth. 12, 12, 24, I believe this is a representative of the church. And so what we see here is, is the worship of the church, worshiping God, worshiping Christ for the sounding of the seventh trumpet because it manifests the mediatorial reign of Christ at the Father's right hand. And what they do is fall upon their faces and worship God. We see them in the book of Revelation, the 24 elders seated on their thrones. But when it comes time to worship, they fall on their faces. They're not even worthy to stand in his presence, and they fall in adoration and humility before him. And they begin by giving thanks to God. O Lord God Almighty, this is God the Father, expressed in this unique revelation phrase. This is the only place in the Bible that these three titles of God, which do appear other places in Scripture, are all brought together in one title, Lord God Almighty. He was, he is, excuse me, he was and he is to come. He is the great I am. He's the Yahweh, the I am, that I am of Exodus 3. He is present. He is active in history. And we can understand that by looking back in biblical history, looking back in history, and he was there. He was working. He was delivering his people. He was judging the nations. He is right now, as these elders fall before him, see him taking his power and judging the nations, and he shall continue to reign in the future. When it says you've taken your great power, this means you have put it into effect. He had the power, but he put it into effect. Okay. You have, you, you're, um, this is pretty simple, maybe not a very good illustration, but you have your automobile out there and it's got power. But it's just sitting there right now. It's not doing anything. You go and you turn the ignition, you put it into effect. The power is there and then you drive home. So Christ has the power to reign and to judge the wicked and to judge the rebels. But from the time that he died until the beginning and this war in 60s, there's 33 years. He had the power, but it appeared that he wasn't doing anything. But now at the seventh trumpet, he's taking his power and he's exercising it in judgment. He's putting into effect the commission that he received from the Father. Now notice as, as they go on with this anthem, the circumstances were that the nations were angry. Well, that's from Psalm 2.1. Why do the heathen rage? Rage in anger. The nations were angry at you. This is the anger of the Jews against Jesus Christ and how they conspired with the kings of the earth, with Pilate, who was the king of the Caesar's representative, and with Herod. Acts 4. Look at there, please. Acts 4, 23 to 28. This brings Psalm 2 which we've spoken much about today, into focus at the crucifixion. Now, this was after the crucifixion. This was after the day of Pentecost. The, the, the disciples were preaching to the Jews in God's mercy, offering them salvation, even though they were so uh, rebellious. But what did the leaders do? Did they say, tell us more? No, they arrest them. And they threaten them and tell them that they had better not speak in that man's name anymore or they're going to pay the price. Verse 23 of Acts 4, And being let go, they, the disciples, went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. 
And when they heard that, that is the company of believers, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, why do the heathen rage? What's that? Psalm 2. They're quoting Psalm 2 in their prayers as they pray it back to God in the midst of their circumstance. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 2. They're done quoting in their prayers, but then they apply it in their prayers. For of a truth against thy holy child, whom thou hast anointed, that is, whom you've made Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, there's the kings of the earth, and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So they were angry. They were raging at Christ. And in this anthem of praise in heaven, it's referring to that conspiracy against Christ hatched by the anger of the Jewish leaders and they brought Pilate and Herod into their conspiracy and they put Christ to death. So the nations were angry at you. They were rebelling against your Christ. But now your wrath has come. What wrath? The wrath of Psalm 2. Remember, if you even provoke him a little, his wrath will be kindled. It says in Psalm 2, the Lord spoke to them in his wrath. And so thy wrath is come, as Psalm 2 said. These are rebellious nations. And the nation in view here is the nation of Israel primarily. This is the wrath that Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse. That is, the wrath is come in this anthem is referring to this wrath. Luke 21, 20 to 24. And when Jesus speaking, and when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Which includes Psalm 2, by the way. Here's what Christ goes on to say, But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled. So Jesus speaks of that time and the fall of Jerusalem and that war as the days of vengeance. It's very clear who he's talking about. He's talking about Jerusalem. He even names it in that passage. And he uses the word woe. This is one of the woes we saw in the seventh trumpet. And he specifically says, that that time will be wrath upon this people, the Jews. And what does the anthem say in Revelation? And thy wrath is come. It's here. 
the seventh trumpet. It's here. It's done. Then he says, in the time of the dead, that they should be judged. The word time here refers to the right time, the appointed time, the suitable time. This time has come with the seventh trumpet. But who does it refer to? And when is it speaking? Is this the final judgment? Is this the, the dead of all the world in coming before God in the final judgment at the seventh trumpet? No, not at all. And those who uh, don't understand the, 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 uh, the need of interpreting Scripture as Scripture often want to take that Jerusalem as the time as the final judgment for all mankind, which is, to me, unbelievable. They could come to such a, a, a decision. What does the context tell us? Who are the dead that should be judged? Well, go back to Revelation 6. The uh, the fifth seal. He opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain, the dead. They were killed. Physically, they were dead, but they were now under the altar. They were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they heard. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth or the land, our persecutors, our murderers? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also in their brethren that should be killed, as they were, should be fulfilled. What this is talking about is there's no longer any wait for these martyrs under the altar. They were the dead. They were the slain. They were the martyred who had been praying. And what the seventh trumpet says, you don't have to wait anymore. The time has come, and God is judging your persecutors. You are being avenged. The word judge that is used here in this verse in Revelation is the word that can be translated also vindicated. When a judge judges, he can vindicate the accused by saying they're innocent or he condemn the accused by declaring them guilty. And so the word judge can mean vindicate or even avenged. The time of the dead that they should be avenged. Moses Stewart, in his commentary, I think has it right. He says, here the dead, that is the martyrs, are to be vindicated. And the words, the time of the dead, is the time which they will be avenged or vindicated. The time in which their supplications of chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, that were accepted, are now answered. That's what it's talking about, not the final judgment. It's the seventh trumpet in A.D. 70. It's talking about the martyrs who have been killed by the Jews, persecuted, and put to death, are now to be judged, that is, vindicated. And their enemies are to be destroyed. Because that's what it goes on to say here in verse 11. I mean, in chapter 11... But he says the dead should be, the dead believers should be avenged. And, see, this is why I believe it's talking about the, the Christians, not all the dead, but the martyrs. Not only are they going to be avenged, but they're going to be rewarded. They're going to be rewarded. 
And the martyrs came from different classes. They came from the prophets, they came from the saints, and they came from those who feared God's name. Now, again, historical context is very important. This is Judea, Galilee, Samaria, the area where the Jews lived. And in the book of Acts, we have the story of the uh, preaching of the gospel in the region and how it was uh, greatly resisted, but there were Jews who believed. There were, there were like a Barnabas, for example, a Silas, who were not part of the original trial, but these were believers in Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, these different phrases, uh, different titles are used. The prophets refer to those whom God sent, whom Christ sent to the Jews prior to the end of the nation. As Jesus said in Matthew 23, 34, I'm going to send to you prophets, but you're going to kill them. You're going to reject them. That's the prophets that he's talking about here. The prophets who were sent that Jesus said would be killed. How about the prophets we just saw in chapter 11, verse 10, that were martyred in the streets of Jerusalem? What about the saints? In the context of the book of Acts, in the transition from Old Testament to New Testament, the book of Revelation, the saints refers to believing Jews, the true Jews of the Old Testament people, the John the Baptists, the Marys, the Josephus. These were the Annas. These were the ones who were the saints among the sinners of Israel. These were the true believers. And that those who fear God is a phrase that's used throughout the book of Acts to refer to Gentile converts to Israel, either in the sense of being full proselytes or being those who attended the synagogue faithfully because they wanted to know the God of Israel and were looking to move to the final stage of being proselytes. These are the groups that were in the land of Palestine during the period between Christ's ascension and the judgment in AD 70. There were the prophets, uh, uh, the Jewish prophets that he sent to them. There were the saints, the believing Jews who were there and witnessing, and there were the Gentile proselytes. That's those three classes. And all three of them suffered greatly because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And the rest of the Jews said no. And they persecuted them. Many they put to death. And so now the time for the reward has come. This is one of the great things of the scripture. When God judges his enemies, he rewards his people at the same time. Look at Egypt. Proud, rebellious Pharaoh and his followers. Who was the Lord? I know not the Lord. I will not let Israel go. He mocked the word of God. Well, he was judged. But in the judgment of Egypt, what did it mean to the people of God? They were set free. And so here, as AD 70 is the judgment on the enemies, it's also the reward time for God's people. For the martyrs, they're rewarded in heaven. But those who weren't killed, those prophets who did not suffer that. Those saints who lived through all of that time and those, those uh, pro- Gentiles who were in the land of uh, Palestine who also had come to believe in Jesus, they, those of those who weren't killed, they were blessed in this life. 
You know, the, the rewards here is something that I want us to just think about for a moment. God gives rewards to his servants. What a wonderful truth. What a, a glorious theology. God rewards his servants. Now, this word servant means a bond servant. This was not somebody who was in a contractual agreement and could quit and go somewhere whenever they wanted. They were bound to a master and they were bound to obey. And therefore, there is no place for rewards in that system, at least not in the sense of rewards of promotions and salaries and, and, and those type of things. You just did your duty. In fact, Jesus in a parable said you were an unprofitable servant if you only did your duty. Reward for doing your duty? That's what you're supposed to do as a servant. Obey your master. But the glory of our master is he delights in rewarding his servants. We don't deserve it. Or we have no claim to it might be a better way to put it. But he delights in it. He wants to reward us. When we do work well, when we serve faithfully him and his purposes, God delights to reward. And what is a reward? It's something given to us in return for services performed. And so he delights to give us rewards for the services that we render unto him. And these rewards of God are experienced both in this life and in the life to come. And the rewards in this life are summarized under the Old Testament teaching under the word bless. Delights to bless. And what does bless mean? It means to empower for success. And the success that the Old Testament and New Testament points out is not money. I mean, that might have a spin-off effect. But it means to be successful in living. To succeed in this thing we call life. And you look around, how many people are succeeding in this thing we call life? Not too many. Miserable, broken, bitter. God says, I'll fill your life with power. You might live the abundant life I have planned for you. You might have meaning, purpose, joy, and success in life. Success in your marriage. Success in your parenting. Success in your church life, success in your business, success in your community, success, 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 success in living. That's the blessing of God. He gives that to us for work well done. But the ultimate reward is yet to come. We saw a vision of that, didn't we, in Revelation 7, 9 to 17 of the intermediate state. Oh, what a glorious picture of the reward to the faithful servant. But then when we come to Revelation 21, we will see the reward of the new heavens and the new earth and the beauties that are there. God rewards them. But do you ever think that maybe God forgot something about what you did? You overlooked something you did? Here's an encouragement to you. For God is not unrighteous, Hebrews 6.10, to forget your work and labor of love, which you've showed toward his name, in that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. God is not unrighteous to forget. The the blessing is delayed a little while for his purposes. The reward of the martyrs here was delayed for some many years. But the time had come with the seventh trumpet. 
So God's time for you and rewards will come. But he might test you for a season. Particularly, we're not to serve him for the rewards. We're to serve him because he's a good master. And when he sees that we serve him out of love, as this verse says, he's not unrighteous to forget your work and labor that is motivated by love. He will in his good time give that. And as we think of God's rewards, let's keep in mind that ultimately these rewards are really a gift. They're really a gift. In other words, if you love Christ and others, is that because of the natural man in you? It's because of the Holy Spirit within you. And really, everything we do is because of his power. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you know, eternal life is not just length of life. That's the mistake we have. Eternal life, well, that just means it'll never end. Well, it does mean that. But it's not just that. Because eternal life, if you're living in a horrible situation, you want to get out of it. You want to live in that eternally. Actually, eternal life is a quality of life. It's to share in the life of Christ. So the gift of God is eternal life here and in the world to come. So it's these blessings, this empowerment is a gift. The only thing we ever earn through our own works is death. And everything else, even the rewards we're talking of here, is the gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He rewards the prophets. He rewards the saints and rewards them that fear his name. And then he even adds this in this text here, even the small and the great. This refers to rank. It refers to social or economic status. It refers to power and influence. What have I done? I'm the small, you might be thinking. I don't have much Im- impact. I don't have a lot of money. I'm in low in the, in the, in the rank here, and my influence is small. But it doesn't matter. If you're faithful where God puts you and the gifts he has you, he will reward you. The small and the great are both important to him. That's why he rewards both. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that most of us are in the small rank. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But instead, the weak things of the world, you and I, if God sees and rewards, don't feel slighted by God. If you have served him in the right way, the rewards are right now being experienced or they will be experienced in God's perfect time. And then he says, in this anthem concludes, you would destroy them that destroy the earth. This is the perfection of God's justice. He destroys the destroyers. He doesn't destroy the builders. He doesn't destroy the helpful. He doesn't destroy the good. He doesn't destroy Israel because he just happens to be a capricious God. He is destroying them because they're the destroyers. This is what that that phrase we call from the Bible, the lex talionis, the law of the tooth. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, stripe for stripe, burn for burn, life for life. In other words, the penalty fits 
the crime, always in God's law. Never do you, are you overpunished or underpunished. It's always perfect justice. You get exactly what you deserve. And this destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, this destruction of the Jewish nation, this fall of Judea, and then being taken into captivity and scattered throughout all the world is exactly what they deserved. Nothing more, but nothing less. He destroys the destroyers. The word destroyer means to corrupt or ruin. They had corrupted the biblical faith into their horrible Judaism of legalism and human traditions. They'd corrupted the worship of the temple and turned it into an idolatry of their own making. They had corrupted the land. They had corrupted their offices where Jesus had to say that to, to these leaders in Israel that they robbed widows' houses. They crushed the poor. They crushed the weak. They were the destroyers. They ruined everything they laid their hands to. They laid waste to the covenant people. And so now God is going to lay waste to them. When you see today the destroyers at work in the world who are corrupting everything, corrupting morality, corrupting families, uh, ruining nations, ruining communities, laying waste to relationships and friendships and a culture, we see it all around us. Take heart. God's time is coming and he will destroy the destroyers. And for that, we need to pray. And all we're praying for is simple, clear justice. And if you love justice, biblical justice, then you pray for such things. And so the seventh trumpet is marking the destruction of those who were the destroyers. The final verse is the covenantal basis for this judgment of apostate Israel. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Now, why is the ark of the testament appear in this vision? It's the ark of his covenant. The ark of the covenant was the symbol of God's covenant with Israel, and it sat in the holiest of holy places. And you could not see it because it was shielded by a, a, a curtain. And then outside of the curtain, in, in the interior of the temple, was the holy place. But you couldn't see the holy place unless you were a priest because there was a curtain there. Here we're told the curtains were drawn back. John saw the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why does the Ark appear at this time? There's various interpretations. Um, time is up, so I'm just going to go with what I think it is. Some think it's a reference to the, to the um, New Testament the way into God's presence is now open. The ark, we can all go to the ark. The other believe that though the temple in Jerusalem is now destroyed, the true temple of God continues on in heaven, and that's all true. But I think it's appearing here in the context, which is the determining factor of interpretation. What is the context? Judgment. Seventh trumpet. Destroying the destroyers. Why should this appear at that point? It's because in the Ark of the Covenant, do you remember what's in there? The Law of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, after Moses preached and gave the summary of the law in Deuteronomy, twice the Levites were said to take the law that he had just written and put it in the chest. That is the Ark of the Covenant. 
that it would be there as a witness against Israel if they broke the covenant, and God would then judge them. I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 31 for that explanation. And so as the seventh trumpet sounds, bringing the culmination of the wrath of God against covenant-breaking Israel, it is shown very clearly that this was a righteous judgment because Israel had broken the law of the covenant that was in and represented the covenant. It was in the Ark of the Covenant itself. So the seventh trumpet marks the culmination of the wrath of God against covenant-breaking Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant containing the law of the covenant is set forth for all to see that all might agree that God was just in destroying the destroyers. They destroyed the covenant. They made mockery of that relationship between God and Israel. They were the destroyers. Let me conclude with one law of the covenant that was against them. It was the law of Numbers 35, 30 to 34. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death. By the mouth of witnesses, but one witness shall not testify against any person to call them to die, cause them to die. Moreover, you shall take no satisfaction for the life of the murderer. No satisfaction of any kind for the murderer. Who is guilty of death, he shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no satisfaction for him that has fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the high priest. Pause for a moment. He can't even go to the city of refuge for help if he's a murderer. So shall you not pollute the land wherein you are, for blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that it shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. Defile not therefore the land which you shall inhabit. Where I dwell, Ark of the Covenant, for I am the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Symbolize, I'm adding this to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, they had destroyed the land. They had polluted the land. They had defiled the land. But with whose blood? If this was the law for any man, any woman who was killed, their blood was precious and the land was defiled, no satisfaction could be taken for that blood and the land had become polluted through that blood, and the, the death penalty must be expressed, brought to pass. Who did these destroyers, who did the Jews, kill and stain the lands with the blood of? Jesus. The blood of this incarnate Son of God. You shall take no satisfaction for them. They must die. The land is under the curse because the Lord dwells therein. The symbol of the dwelling is the Ark of the Covenant, and I believe that's why it's put forward at this moment to show their judgment. The lightnings and voices and thunderings that are given here are symbolic of the presence of a holy God exercising his wrath against sin. And so the sounding of the seventh trumpet marks the end. The fall of Jerusalem. We saw in verse 15 this morning, one of the great verses of Revelation and of the Bible. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. 
That was fulfilled. When Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand, it's in effect today. Today. The Lordship of Christ and his mediatorial reign over all is the theme of this judgment and the theme of the book, and it should be the church's theme of worship and the center of its message. Furthermore, we see in this passage, if we went back to chapter 6, that the prayers of the martyrs, the prayers of the church for the judgments of the enemies of Christ will be answered in God's time. And that's exactly what happened here. Back in chapter 6, he said, wait a little while. Time hasn't quite come yet. This says it's come. The judgment has fallen. Though they had to wait, they had to be patient. We need to have that same patience and faith as we pray for God's judgment on the evildoers who will not repent and put their faith in Christ. The justice of God is on full display. He destroys the destroyers. It's all based on his revealed law. And he rewards his servants. Don't forget that glorious teaching of today. He rewards his servants. All are known to him. None are overlooked. The small and the great. The prophets. The saints. And those who fear God. All are rewarded. God's grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, that we could see with John the the realities that are revealed here of Christ. He's king. Yeah, the nations are angry today. They're rebelling, conspiring, haughty and uh, hateful. Yet Christ still sits on his throne and in his time he will destroy the destroyers. He always has and he always will. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to believe in these truths. Help us to now, like the 24 elders, worship the Son of God who is mediatorial king, ruling the nations. This teaches us that the United States of America is, is his. Whether the people or the rulers recognize it at all, he has been given authority over all nations. We'd better wake up to this fact before we, like Judea and the Jews, perish when his anger is kindled but a little. We pray in our glorious, meteorial king's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.